Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. of Proverbs. Uh, my name's Jonathan. I probably should have introduced myself if you're new here. I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been talking through the book of Proverbs, and we've been talking about the skillful life, right? The, the wisdom is being skilled at life, and wisdom is living in concert, right, with how God's made the world. And so we would say as Christians, live, living wisely is living in reality. There's a reality in which God has created the world, and to live outside of that we would call unwise, and to live inside of that we'd call wise. And inside of that, there's so many promises that God makes to those who will choose to live in his way. And so that's what we're just trying to do. We're trying to become wise, and um, we don't want to get stuck in kind of the false equivalency of, of everything is either good or evil, because a lot of times things are good, but they might just be unwise for your season of life, for what God's called you to do. And uh, I still remember one of the like, key moments in my life when Greg Dewey, uh, Chase turned 16, and he invited a bunch of the kind of the mentors in Chase's life to get together, and his plea to Chase was to live wisely in the world. Choose wisdom right? It's not always about just good or evil. It's actually about what is God doing? How do I hear his voice? How do I live wisely according to the scriptures? And I, I love that. It just stuck with me. I was like, man, when I have kids someday, because I didn't have kids at that point, I don't think. When was that? Maybe I did. Maybe a few. We've had so many now. <laughs> it's hard to remember most of my life. But I was just like, oh, I want my kids to be wise, right? Like, I want them to be smart, I want them to be successful, all that stuff, but if I could choose anything, I would want them to li love Jesus and live according to his way. That's, that's just it. And I'm like, if you do anything else, I don't really care. I had a friend whose dad sat him down when he's a teenager, he's a punk rock band, he's like, my hair was blue, and I was just like going for it, and he's like, listen, if you please God, you please me. He's like, I don't care what color your hair is, I don't care what kind of music you like, I don't care what you do in the world, if you please God, I will be so happy with your life. It's not about controlling, right? And so we want to live these kind of lives of wisdom. So today, um, we're going to go to Proverbs, and we're going to talk about the sluggard. Doesn't that sound fun? The sluggard. So Proverbs 6 says this, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a robber and your want like an armed man. The writer of Proverbs here is saying, beware of laziness, right? of sluggishness, the sluggard. Then you go on, right? It's, it's all through Proverbs. 
Proverbs 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. <laughs> right? Isn't that crazy? You all, we all know what it's like to get smoke in your eyes where you're building a fire and you're over and it just, all, it just goes right in there and you're just like, oh, you're like, that's what it's like when you have a sluggard, when you're sending somebody who's not going to do what they're supposed to do. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And this is interesting because this kind of idea of sluggard, lazy, right? It's not just about the outside. It's actually about your soul, right? The soul of the diligent, the, in, the inner being of the diligent actually is richly supplied. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. It's weird because it actually starts to kill desire, Laziness kills desire. You don't even, you can't even be bothered to have passion about life. The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. I don't know how many times you've seen a lion in the streets. Not often. Um, I passed by the, by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. The sluggard just lacks sense. The sluggard says, uh, sorry, as a, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard turn on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So let's make this practical here. Like, what do we see in the life of the sluggard, right? What do we see here? The first thing is we see that they, they won't make up their mind. How long will you lie there? When will you arise from your sleep? It's just almost they're, they're stuck in paralysis of just be like, ah, I don't know. I'm just going to hang out until something breaks. And they just won't make up their mind. They don't have a purpose. They don't have like an animating aim in life. It's just whatever may come, right? I'll just leave it up to whatever happens in my life. It's just like, I'll just take it, right? Whatever comes, not I'm going to go make something of the world. I'm going to make something of my life. I'm going to have an aim and a purpose. We see in uh, Proverbs 26, that the sluggard won't finish things. If they do start something, they won't finish it, right? He buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. So, so we probably have either been this person or we know these kinds of people who are always starting things and never finishing them. Or life is all ideas. You're like, oh man, not another coffee with the newest idea past the one that never got finished the first time. And you're just like, just stay with something, right? But it's like this thing of like, the slugger just won't finish things, right? The third thing, the slugger in Proverbs 22, the sluggard won't face reality. This is really interesting, right? He says, there's a lion outside. I'll, I'll be killed in the streaks. The sluggard excuses their non-action by some kind of outside danger or something coming against them or it's always somebody else's fault. There's something happening that's keeping me from doing the things I know I'm supposed to be doing. They won't face reality and so their lives are full of excuses. And it's interesting, again, because uh, this could sound like, oh, this is just really practical advice. But the Bible says these kind of things affect your soul. They don't just affect your outer being, right? Just your financial life. or It actually starts to corrode the inside 
of your life. And when the inside of your life gets corroded, what happens is you become open to all sorts of other evil things. So it's like this thing of he's saying the the sluggard not living in reality opens them up to a non-reality, which is to live in such a way to not take ownership of their life. God breathed life into you and his goal is that you would take ownership of it with him and to live, right, according to who he called you to be, who you are in him, what his purpose is in the world. And yet sometimes we just don't want to live in the reality. And it's, and it's fun because the, the writer of Proverbs here compares them to ants, right? It's like, look at the ant. What, is, what does the ant do, right? I love this. Uh, without having a chief or officer or anything like that, the ant just does its work. So somehow this, this ant, this being that God created, has an inner motivation to do what it's supposed to do. It has this inward, like, like homing beacon on like true north for what is an ant, right? Oh, the ant's supposed to gather, it's supposed to work, it's supposed to do these things. It's this inner motivation. So you see the difference between the sluggard and the diligence. The diligent have inner motivation. They find something inside them that says, I need to make something of my life. If God's given me one talent or two talents or five talents, whatever it is he's given me, I need to make something of it. And at some point in your life, it's beyond that. It's even what is the story that I've lived, both good and bad, and how do I make something of this life that I've lived, either what I've done or what's happened to me. How do I find the inner motivation to make something good out of this? The second thing you see, the diligent work hard. She prepares her bread in summer. She's at work in the seasons where work is necessary. Right? It's like she doesn't miss out on the season where it's like, it's time to work. Uh, I, I said last week, I think it was, I grew up in southwest Kansas around farmers. And um, southwest Kansas is like big farms, like, you know, like 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 acres. But it's interesting because you plant like wheat, right? And wheat grows in the winter. And so you find out that farmers in the winter don't have a lot to do. It's really cold right? And so they mostly tinker in their sheds on their vehicles, and they fix their tractors. They do, they do various things, but it's like, when it's harvest time, it is 18-hour days every single day, except for Sundays, that they actually would not work. They're like, this is the Lord's day. We don't work on Sundays. But like, Wednesday nights, I can remember Wednesday nights, seeing the farmers in the field. They'd work till, you know, 5.30 p.m., They'd get off their tractor, they'd go take a shower, they'd get dressed for church, they'd come to church, they'd get out of church, they'd go back home, they'd get on the tractor, and you would see them at night with their lights on. Just going, it's like, it's like they worked hard. I remember my dad telling me about a, um, a missions trip to Peru, and he's like, my dad's like a big guy, he's a strong guy, he's a pretty tough guy, and he's like, I've never seen men work like this. Like, literally working 18 hours a day, it's just sweating, and they're building this church just nonstop. But God says, I made you to work, right? In the garden, he's like, I've given you work to do. You should work hard. It actually images God. The next thing you see about the diligent compared to the sluggard is that in verse 8 of chapter 6, that she gathers her food and harvest. Um, So she gathers food and she prepares for the future. The diligent prepare for the future, right? The sluggard only thinks about today. What do I want today? What do I need today? The diligent prepare for the future. And this is really important, right? Because the future is coming whether you want it to or not, right? Tomorrow's coming. How do you prepare for tomorrow in a way that will allow you to live? So, right, the wise are always looking ahead to say, what's, what's coming down the pike? Jesus even says this. He's like, he's like you, you see the sky a certain color and you know it's going to rain, 
And he's like, and yet you can't read the news about me. You're, you're missing me. But he's saying that something key is like, you know how to look around and see kind of what's happening in the world and how to prepare for it. That's what the diligent do. So this, this is pretty simple, right? And it's interesting because if we stopped here, most everyone in this room would be fine. It, it, this is just kind of like our, our church is mainly people who are hardworking, diligent, ambitious, honest, kind in their regular day in and day out lives. And so um, if we just stop there, you'd all feel really good and go home, but we can't do that. Um, we got to dig a little bit deeper. You're like, oh, I'm not a sluggard. Good job, me. Way to go. I'm just going to go home and have lunch. It's good. But the Bible, right, and Christian history addresses a, a different kind of sluggard that I think is so important, and I think in our culture today is, is the most important kind, and it's this word sloth, right? And so again, when you hear the seven deadly sins, you're a- anger, envy, gluttony, lust, pride, sloth, you're like, I'm doing pretty good on those, right? You're like, I'm not too bad. And you're sloth, and you're like, I work so hard. Sloth's the one that's like, check off on that one. But it's interesting because if you read Christian history, sloth doesn't actually mean laziness. You know, because we look around and we live in one of the the fastest moving, busiest, success worshiping, performance oriented societies the world has ever seen. But sloth isn't about laziness in our daily lives. Sloth is spiritual laziness. It's spiritual laziness. As one person said it, sloth is characterized by zeal for the wrong things. Like, it's actually possible to live your life with utmost passion about the wrong things, about everything but what God's doing. St. Thomas said, sloth is sorrow about spiritual good. (laughs) It's excitement about all the worldly things that are going on, and yet we're sorrowful about spiritual good. Or another said, sloth is joylessness when faced with God as our supreme joy. Like we're joyful about so many things, we're surprised by so many things, we're passionate about so many things, and yet when we hear about God as our supreme joy, we kind of go, is that, is that it? Sloth robs us of our appetite for God, our interest and enjoyment of him. We live and drink deeply of the world, yet when we come to him, we seem to have lost our ability to enjoy him. So Hebrews 6 says this, land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. He says, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. We don't want you to become lazy, right? He's not talking about work. He's not talking about your job. He's talking about the spiritual life, the inner life of the Christian. He says, but I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Romans 12 says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but in keeping your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. So Paul touches them, he's like, it's possible to keep doing God's work, but lose your zeal. It's possible to actually just start going through the motions and start checking the boxes and doing the rituals, and yet our hearts are growing cold, right? That thing, that land that drinks in the rain. I love that. That's, that's a description of how our heart should be towards Jesus. Our heart should be land that's soft and tilled, and when it rains, it just, 
it just sucks it up and it stores it for the time when that seed gets planted. And when the seed gets planted, it just, it just grows. You don't have to do anything. It just grows when the time's right. And I think, honestly, as I, uh, so I, I, I've reflected on this a lot now. It's like I'm in my 25th-ish year of like paid ministry. And 25 years is enough to see patterns, right? And to know what's happening in the church and what's God doing and how are things working. And I think this is one of the things that has been wrecking the church. I think this, this zeal for the wrong things, or the Bible would call it worldliness, a lack of passion and excitement for Jesus. But Jesus said this, he said, I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he says, I've come that my joy might be in you. <laughs> that in your inner being, joy would just be responding to all the things that God's doing. And this happens in beautiful ways that are like common grace. Like when you go and stand in the mountains and the majesty of creation, it's just like, <gasps> this, this joy is like beating in your heart. But it should be also about the things where God is present, right? So I, I've always asked my th myself this because I'm kind of a person who's hungry for the world. Anybody else? Anybody else hungry in here for the world? It's okay to admit it. God made us this way. I love things. Like, I, I, I love things that human beings create. I love the stories of businesses. I love the, uh, the amazing thing that wine is, that you take a grape and you crush it and you ferment it. You do all this stuff and it becomes a million different things out of the same, like, fruit. I, I love this kind of stuff. I love sports. I love thunder games. I love, like, you know, jumping up and down. I love cheering. I love getting excited about things. Um, I, I was just made that way. And I always ask myself, why is it that I see people who are so animated at, like, an OU football game? But when I see them at church, it's like, isn't that weird? I mean, I've watched some of the most conservative people you've ever known jump up and down like idiots when a 19-year-old carries a football over an imaginary line. And you would have thought Jesus returned. Like, did he? Where He's here, right? And it's like, no, it's just, it's just football. And they're like, hands in the air, just oh, high five, you know, like that. And then, like, you go to church and it's like, oh, man, you know, what do they say? They, they lowered the fans so people wouldn't raise their hands in church. And, and so you just see this weird thing like, I've watched people who, they're so passionate about their business. If you sit down with them in the week that they closed a giant business deal, you would just see their faces red, the joy, the excitement. It's like, man, this is so cool. Like, this happened. I never thought it would happen. I worked so hard. I did all this stuff. It's like, ah, right? And I'm just like, yes, God made you to do that. God made you to live that way. He made you excited about what you do day in and day out to create in the world. Like, you should live that way. My thing is, you should also live that way with him. <laughs> when you're in his presence, when you're with his people, you should be as excited about who he is and what he's doing, how he's made you. The people around you that are just miracles, and you just look around, you go like, look at what God's doing. This is so cool. Peter Kreft says this. He says, sloth refuses to work at our heavenly task. It just kind of sees the task, right? It's the story of the vineyard worker who says, I'll go and then doesn't. Right? Jesus tells that parable. It's like, oh, I'll go work. And then they, they just don't. Sloth is unmoved by the things of God, unimpressed. It's the latte worship. Right? You're like, oh, this is good. A good latte. Oh. Right? And you're just kind of like, if you just took that person out and put them anywhere, it would be the same. 
right? They could be at Starbucks, they could be with friends, they could be like, but you're like, you're in the presence of God. God's real, you're in his presence right here. He says, where two or three are gathered, I'm in their midst. And you never find God showing up in the scriptures and people just be like, well, that was kind of cool. You literally find them like, my bones are rotting. I'm falling on my face. My, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just crazy stuff happens when God shows up. And our bodies are actually meant to respond to it. But I think that we fill our lives with all the things of the world and we don't have time for Jesus many times. We live our outer lives with such intention. So this is funny. This happened this morning. I'm like praying and I'm preparing my sermon and I got 10 texts this morning about our flag football league for eight-year-olds. On Sunday morning, trying to work out, are we playing, are we not playing, are we going to do a doublehead? And I mean, people are in and they're responding and I'm like, this is such a weird thing. It's the Lord's day. And yet nobody's having to cajole them or really force them to get this thing going. They love their children. They love the sport they're playing and they're in. And I just think if I was like, hey, I'd love to see you at pre-service prayer, they'd be like, ah, I don't know. We're busy. We're pretty busy. Or, or my favorite term is whenever I ask somebody to do something in church, they're like, let me pray about it. Let me pray about it. I'm like, like our flag football team, nobody's, I thought about responding to the text message this morning. It's like, I was just going to put, let me pray about it and just see how it went. But I didn't. I'm learning wisdom. The next level would be not even admitting that here. But, uh, but I'm like, okay, Lord, like, it feels like sometimes we roll into the body of Christ and the world has sucked up all of our passion all of our joy, all of our intention, all of the intensity we would give to God, we've spent it. And my thing is, I think it's the opposite, right? So they would say in the garden, man didn't uh, work, he didn't, what did, he didn't rest from his work, he worked from his rest. God created him in the first day, you know what he did in the garden with God? He rested. He walked with God and then he worked. Right? So we're actually created to come to church, get filled up, get so passionate for him, and get all of our intensity and intentionality, and then go pour it into the world. Right? Not come here weary and disheveled and just be like, oh, Lord, I've just been spinning it all. It's like, no, no, no. And that's why we do midweek prayer and worship, because we want to go in the middle of the week. I'm starting to feel like, Whoa, and then I'm like, Whoa, and I go back up, because I'm like, I just need more of him because the world is a demanding place. It's contested space. Everybody's like, oh, I'm so glad you're a Christian. Come and talk to me. They're like, I hate Christians. And you're like, oh, what do I do? I'm like, okay, what do, how do I live this? Peter Kreft says this, though. He says, there's a deep spiritual sorrow at the heart of modern civilization because it's the first civilization in all of history that does not know who it is or why it is, that cannot answer three great questions. Where do I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? And where you can't answer those questions, do you know what you do? You eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's what you do. You just go like, ah, I'm just gonna go get all the world has for me because I just don't know if eternity is really real. I don't know if this thing's really true. I'm gonna keep checking the boxes in case because <laughs> we grew up in church and I was like, I don't wanna be one of those people who leave. So I'm just gonna show up and just be like, everything's cool, but most of my intentions spent elsewhere. So what does Jesus say about this? I love this. It's so simple. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And he could have said this in a number of ways. He could have said, blessed are the passionate. Blessed are the zealous. Blessed are those who are excited about me, who are hungry for me, for righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is Jesus. 
It's a person. It's not, it's not a thing you do. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Righteousness is found in a man. St. Irenaeus said this. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. That was Jesus. Jesus was a man who was fully alive. And so um, I know so many of us grew up in, Skyline like gets this um, conglomeration of all backgrounds, right? Like we have Catholics and Southern Baptists and Church of Christ, big time. Church of Christ people love us. Um, I don't know that their parents love us or... uh, other people, but like God's just, he just brings us from all these different backgrounds. We got a few Pentecostals in here, grew up Pentecostal, and they're all like, if you think you're Pentecostal, you need to go visit an actual Pentecostal church because, you know, Skyline's pretty calm. But it's like, we, we get all these people, and I just want to tell you, Christianity's about passion. Like, it's about passion. It's about fire. It's about love. And we don't find it difficult to be passionate about things we love. I'm passionate about every single thing Annie does. Because I love her. She's my bride. I'm, I'm passionate about every single thing my kids do and think and want to do. I don't have to be like, oh, I got to get passionate about this. I just see their little face and they're excited. I'm like, <gasps> right? And then I just, I just, I just jump into it. What does it take to just like fan into flame the gift of God of the things I love? It doesn't take much. I'm so ready to do it. But somewhere along the way, we believed or were taught that the church is the place where you leave your passions at the door. So we're going to run a little experiment right here, okay? I want you to raise your hand if you were trained as a child or a teenager in dance. Raise your hand. Raise it high. None of of this. None of this. Come on, Lauren. Get it up there. Look Look at this. Okay. I want, keep it raised. Keep it raised. Keep it raised. I want you to keep your hand raised if you use those gifts inside the church ever. Keep your hand raised. Have you used them in the church? A few. How many of you are currently using them in the church? Keep them raised. A few, a little bit. Isn't that interesting? Yet God says in the Bible, praise me with dance, with the tambourine, with the lyre, with shouts, with singing, with hands raised. And yet we send our kids out of the world to learn how to dance and we say, but calm down here. And friends, I don't know if you've ever been in a church where like the children get to dance and we've got flags in the back and we probably need to move up, but I mean, they're just like, you just sit there and weep because you're like, this is what Jesus purchased. It's just an excited, passionate, loving, fully alive bride where all the parts of your life that are so good, you know they come from him, right? They come from him and why do we let the world have some of the best parts that God created? But what happens is we kind of live with a distance from God, believing and making an effort, but oftentimes we lack zeal. So what does this zeal look like? Where does it come from? I, I, I want to address that. Um, so I, we're going to do one more experiment. I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Trust me. It's not going to be weird. Nobody's going to do anything to you if you close your eyes. It's a safe place. So just close your eyes and just take a second. So St. Augustine, in one of his sermons, he created this, this kind of question and this thing to test ourselves, which I found so fascinating. Okay, so with your eyes closed, just kind of let yourself settle a little bit, and then imagine this. Imagine God coming to you and offering you the following bargain. So God's standing right in front of you. He's like, I've got a deal for you. Listen up. He offers to give you everything you can imagine in this world and the next as well. Nothing will be impossible to you, and nothing will be forbidden. There'll be no sin no guilt. Anything you can imagine can be yours. 
there's only one thing you'll have to give up. And he looks in your eyes and he says, you can have that, but you'll never see my face. Now open your eyes. When I read that, something in my spirit said, no! I mean, it was like, almost like, ugh! There's nothing worth taking that I would be eliminated from seeing God's face forever. And that's the Holy Spirit in you. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you and his desperation is for you to see the Father, to see the Son. That's why he lives in you. But so many times in life, we've just given up that, that thing that he promises, which is if you're a Christian and I live in you, you can see my face. We sang it today, the veil is torn. But so many times the way we live and the way we do church, and the way we receive religion is like literally stitching that veil back up. And I just want to say, I think of this generation, God's like, keep tearing that sucker down. And I know it's weird, but guess what? Weird Christianity is the only one thing that makes a difference. Read the Bible. It's just like, if you're trying to be a Christian and not be weird, good luck. It's just weird. You believe a man raised from the dead. Can I just remind you of that? You believe that your sins get forgiven and that your heart can be transformed. You can be a different person, a new creation. You believe that. That's a miracle. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's God's face that changes everything and sloth gets us out of the rhythm and practice of seeking his face. We stop seeking. So here, here's uh, just one thing as we kind of head towards wrapping up. The scriptures clearly say that we can see him face to face and the Bible would call this his manifest presence. And we've talked about this before. It's in many ways the church has settled for omnipresence instead of manifest presence. And we're going to work through that just real quick. But here, here's what I'd say. Your job in the world is to reflect God. You're a reflector, which means something has to shine on you, right? But instead, many of us, we've been trained to be regurgitators, <laughs> We learn a bunch of truth, we learn a bunch of worldview, we learn a bunch of facts about God, and we go in the world and we regurgitate them, and then we're like astonished that people don't care. They just don't care. They're like, that's great for you, I love that you found your truth, good for you. But when people reflect Jesus into the world and their face is shining, people have to like, whoa. It's like Moses seeing the burning bush. He like stopped and like, all right. Have you been around somebody lately whose life's being changed by Jesus? And you just go, hold on, I gotta, I gotta talk to you. What's, what's happening in you? Because they're reflecting, right? So omnipresence, it's really interesting. If you look at this chart, hopefully you can read that. It's okay, yeah. So omnipresence, it's biblical, it's real, it's true to God's nature, God's everywhere. It's generally theoretical. So you can get away with the omnipresence of God being abstract, right? but it's available to all, it's universal. It's usually uh, no prayer required. It's just there. It's generally impersonal, abstract. And obedience, you just don't need much obedience when it's just omnipresence. It's just the world that God's placed us here and his presence is here. And you sense it at moments, right? But his manifest presence, I love this, it's also biblical, it's also real, it's true to God's nature, but God's tangibly perceived. In moments where you know God is everywhere, you actually know God is here. So what did Moses do? He took his shoes off because he's like, God is in this place. <laughs> I know he's real. I know he's alive. I know he's everywhere, but he's here now. It's generally transformational. It's normally for God's people. Sometimes God breaks out and just reveals himself to people who aren't Christians, which is awesome too. It's selective rather than universal. 
I love this. Normally prayer is required. It's highly personal. It's specific. And obedience is required. God manifests himself to people. And I love that. The two things that are normally required are prayer and obedience. And it's like, no wonder I prefer omnipresence many times. So I'm like, oh, I just want it to be easy or I want it to be something else. I'm like, oh, I got to, you know, it's like, but no, you've got to press in. So people have asked me many times, like, why are we so focused on worship and prayer, right? Why do we do so much in this one area? And aren't there other things I just say, because God's manifest presence shows up to communities who practice those things. And if his manifest presence shows up, everything changes and he does the work. And we don't have to try so hard. We don't have to, I love this, but like we have to obey out of it, but, but it's just, we invite him in. The book of Acts is literally just a series of worship meetings where the Holy Spirit shows up and then sends people out. But it's not a bunch of guys with good ideas who are trying to be godly. That's not what the book of Acts is about. It's literally there in the place and God's like, wait here until I show up. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? It's like, you'll know. <laughs> they're like, oh, tongues of fire. It was pretty clear that God showed up, right? And here's the, the sad part. Many people who missed the kingdom when Jesus was here in flesh and blood didn't miss it because they were sinners. They missed it because they were good. They're good people doing good things. And they missed it by distraction. They didn't miss it through sinfulness. They're like, oh, let me bury my father. Let me go do this business deal. Let me get to this family thing. And here's what I've seen as a pastor. It's much harder to get people to give up good things than it is to get people to give up sin. Finding the better than good is, is actually more difficult. But here, here's the good news. The good news is fire is God's initiative. Passion is our response. So God's not asking you to live passionately. He's not be like, oh, okay, muster it up. Get excited. We don't have to get here. Like, ah. No, no, no. He's like, show up where my fire is. And guess what? You won't lack for passion. But the other side is if you don't show up to where the fire is, you will lack, you'll lack passion or you'll have it, but it will cost you so much more than it has to. Because you're doing it alone and you're not meant to do it alone. Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> Wherever he shows up, fire is the thing. So a couple things. I'm going to invite the band back up. You know, Revelations 3 speaks clearly to this, right? He says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. God doesn't dislike many things, but what he dislikes, one of the main things is just people who are like, eh, I don't know. You know? So it's interesting, this, this part of Turkey where this happened, they had both hot springs and cool, fresh running water. And both of those things have really helpful uh, aspects, right, for your body. So people would go take, take the waters, living water, and they go in the hot. He's like, he's like, one or the other is good. The worst thing is lukewarm. The middle, the middle where you're like, I'm not hot or cold. I'm just kind of, I kind of don't care. One person said it this way, he says, as followers of Christ, we're not curators of archaeological ruins or worshipers of a dead Messiah. We're flame holders who carry the blazing fire of God's manifest presence. That's what you were meant to do. You were meant to carry God's fire. And here's what I think is interesting. I think the church, which is you, this is you, this is me, this is us, and we can either receive this or not, but I think we're living in a Luke 317 moment in the church. If you just go read the internet, just go read some studies about how many pastors are leaving churches. Not for other churches, they're just leaving the ministry. How many churches are closing? What's happening in, in Western culture with Christianity? 
Luke 3.17 says this, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out his threshing floor. This is his threshing floor. (laughs) The church, it's us. He says, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So we know fire is like cleansing, right? He's trying to cleanse the church. He's trying to bring us back. And he's moving and he's working in the body. And I've seen it and it's really beautiful. But it's also hard because it's, it's a change. It's a shift. It requires from us. So again, if you were to tell me, if you're a parent here and you're like, you want to show me how much you care about your children, you would point to your time and your thoughts and your treasure. You bet, look how much money I spent on these kids. Look at my budget, it's crazy. Look how much time it requires me to get them to all of their events, to their school, to their friend's house, all this stuff. And you would, if, if you could just show, here's how much my child occupies my thoughts, my heart. I think about them all the time. What are they gonna be? Where are they gonna go? Who's being nice to them? Who's being mean to them? What can I do about it? God, what, it's like, it's just so clear. So the question God turned on me this week was, Jonathan, can you show the same for me? Can you show me how your time, treasure, and thoughts are turned towards me consistently? Where you're sowing this in to me, to who I am and to what I'm doing. So here's the cool thing. Uh, Billy mentioned it earlier that we're in the season of Lent and our church um, loves the church calendar because it just gives you these seasons of intentionality, right? And Lent's a 40-day season of fasting, And uh, we try to practice it, and we try to practice it um, above and beyond where most evangelicals who have recently discovered Lent go, right? So we try to practice it beyond just giving up chocolate, right? Like, if you want to give up chocolate, give it up, but just don't tell me about it, right? About how spiritual it is. It's mean. I'm sorry. Gentle speech. No, so we want to actually fast. Biblically, Biblically, fasting is fasting from food. Um, So one of the things I've done with the guys I disciple is we engage in a fast uh, through Lent. We do the traditional Lenten fast, which is sun up to sundown, no food. Have a simple dinner. You break on Sundays for the Lord's Day, right? Because Jesus says, you don't ever fast when the bridegroom's with you. You fast when he's gone. So we we fast sun up to sundown. We do that. And and what we do is we lay down this kind of idea of eating food, and we try to pick up practices that will bring us life practices of prayer and worship, practices surrounding any, any other part of our life, whether it be exercise or whether it be emotional healing, whether whatever it is that God's like, hey, I want you to pick this up because you've cleared space in your life by giving up a meal, by giving up food. Now, what are you going to do with that extra space? Give it to me. And friends, I've watched people's lives radically change in 40 days. Like it's, it's wild if you just give them 40 days. And then what, what Billy said is so true. You hit Easter just like, oh, you're so hungry for the resurrected Jesus when you're just like, thank you, Lord. And so for me, I just want to, what would it look like for you to spend 40 days starting Wednesday cultivating passion for Jesus and his kingdom? Just showing up to the places where his fire is. Would it look like for you to deal with your faith with the same intensity and intentionality that you do with your business? That you do when you're romancing somebody, right? Like You're like, man, I'm so intentional with that girl I like. I show up where she shows up. I DM her. I do all this stuff. I'm like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I'm literally like so strategic, right? When Annie, I was like, all right, where's Annie at? Okay, she was at that place. I'm just like, oh, weird. I showed up at the same place. How random. I was like, nope. I was like, okay. I was, you know, it's like, what if we do the same with Jesus? Where's Jesus showing up these days? 
and I'm just like strategically placing myself in those places, right? Last thing, revival begins with a vision and the vision begins with a new sense of Jesus Christ. Revival doesn't begin with theology, but a theophany. <laughs> theophany is a revelation of him, right? So, so revival doesn't begin with believing the right things. It begins with meeting the right person. And his name is Jesus and he wants to meet you. And I just promise if you meet him and then if you just continually meet him, you will never lack zeal. You'll never lack fire. If you get around other people who are on fire for Jesus, you won't lack. When you start to wane, right, a little bit, somebody else is doing this. And you're like, all right, I'm just going to go with them. They've got the momentum. That's what the church is. The church is this continual thing. So I want you to stand to your feet. And we're going to just spend some time in prayer about this. And it's a great time to ask the Holy Spirit, hey, what would it look like for me to engage in this practice in Lent? And uh, can I just encourage you, when it comes to these things, um, it, so many times we want to be original, right? And we talked about this in our young men's discipleship. We're like, oh, well, that's good for Jonathan. I'm going to make up my own thing. Sometimes it's good just to like, I'm just going to do what that person, I'm just going to join them in that thing. So I encourage you, like, you don't have to make it up. Church history has given us a form. Just do it and see what happens. So maybe ask the Holy Spirit, okay, in that, if I go through this fasting thing, what is it you want me to lay down in my life? What is, where's the part that's unhealthy and what do I need to pick up for this season? A new practice, a new pursuit. So I'm going to call our prayer team up um, to the sides. And I want to encourage you, if something's stirring your heart, you just need prayer about, come pray. If you're like, man, I'm lacking zeal right now. I just need somebody to pray over me. Um, we've also seen like numerous physical healings in our community in the last few weeks. We've seen just God working in people's lives and emotional healing, all that stuff. And all that stuff's available through prayer. It's beautiful. Someone in your family sick or far from God, come and pray. So if you bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to take a moment. So Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge your presence in this room. And Jesus, we know that you purchased for yourself like your desire was for a passionate bride. So Lord, you started that work in our church. Would you sustain it? And God, if there's any in here who just has felt their passion or their zeal waning, God, would you set them on fire in this season? We know that's what you do and we trust you to do it. And I'm so thankful. This isn't about earning. This isn't about trying harder. This is about surrender to you just surrender right now, Jesus, to you. You're the good shepherd. We just trust you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.